Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. Um, I just want you to know that you are loved as a church. Um, my wife and I are no different than any of you, but we miss you as a church when we're away, and we're just so grateful to come back to a family like this. Um, this coming week, um, we will be celebrating Remembrance Day. And I want us to just be reminded that there are absolutely no freedoms that we enjoy that had not, did not have to first be purchased in one way or another. And so what we want to do this morning, we want to actually take a moment and acknowledge um, all those who have given themselves for the freedoms that we enjoy and all those who are presently serving in the front lines. So I was going to ask you this morning, if you would once again just stand and join me as we observe a moment of silence for all those who have given themselves for us and are presently giving themselves for us. So join me in a moment of silence. Thank you. Please be seated, and let's continue in our worship in the time of prayer. Father, this morning we come before you and we bow before you. I'm on my knees this morning, Lord, as we come under your submission, as we come under your authority. And Lord, we're reminded of the freedoms that we experience, Lord. And the truth is there are no freedoms unless they've first been paid for. I know often, Lord, we don't even comprehend that or think about it, but that is the truth. And so, Lord, we're, we thank you for all those who have given of themselves so that we might be free in our country. I pray, Lord, that you would give strength to those who are presently serving the Lord so that we may continue to experience the freedoms that we have. And Father, in light of that, we remember that as we think of Jesus Christ, who gave himself, who paid the ultimate price for our freedom, that we might be set free from death, that the power of sin and death may be broken over us, and that we might be joined through Jesus Christ and have eternal life forever. So we thank you for the freedoms that was purchased for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be ever mindful of that, that because of that, Lord, we are no longer citizens of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And I pray we would not forget that. I pray, Lord, that we would not be swept away with all that's happening in our world today. I pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes set firmly and steadfastly on Jesus Christ and on him alone. I pray, Lord, that in everything that we do, we would be mindful of the people that we are. We are a people unto you. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation of your people. And you have made us to be your own. 
We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. I pray we would remember that, Lord. Stamp it on our hearts that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Father, work within our hearts and within our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would take the good news of Jesus Christ who purchased our freedom and that we would proclaim it to those who are in bondage. That is the calling that you have placed upon us as citizens of the kingdom of God. And the church, Lord, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. And I pray we would remember that. And I would pray we would remember the reason for which you have left us here. And that is to make known the glory of God. That we might take the good news of your kingdom of your gospel and take it to those who are lost and bound and are in prison to sin and bound by death and under eternal judgment, Lord. Keep us from being swept away by anything else that will keep us from the upward call that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that whatever we do, we would do as unto you, Lord. And so, Father, this morning we've come together We want to worship you because we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. We were your enemies. And you've not only made us your friends, but you've adopted us and made us your children. I pray, Lord, that we would work from that perspective, from that reality. And so keep us, Lord, from getting too hung up on temporary things of this world but to keep our eyes on the eternal things, the kingdom that is to come. We've come together, Lord, because we want to sit under the preaching of your word so that we might be fed, that your Holy Spirit will continue to move in our hearts, to raise us up, to strengthen us in the faith, to to edify us as a body, Lord, so that we might go out and continue to proclaim your good name. And so, Lord, this morning, would you open up your word to us? Would your Holy Spirit fill us? Would we receive what you have for us in your word this morning? In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, if you're new here or you're visiting with us, maybe you've already attended a little while, I just want you to know we have nothing to offer you except Jesus Christ. That is all we have for you. And he is enough. And because we want to present to you Jesus Christ and because we want to bring you to Jesus, our format of preaching in here is expositional preaching, which means we will open up God's word and we will declare God's word as he has revealed it and then we'll apply it in our context. Because we don't want a God of our own choosing, of our own liking, but we want to know God as he has revealed himself in his word. And so having said that, please take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And here's what God's word says to us this morning. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice 
and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome or what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, this is your word as you have revealed it. And I pray, Lord, that this morning your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ and that your word would have an effect upon us so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my wife and I just came off of three weeks of holidays and we had an incredible time of just completely disconnecting. And I think it was actually really healthy for us to do so with everything that's going on right now with COVID and politics, the politics surrounding COVID and everything else. It's just been really something. And to be able to disconnect from that has just been so enriching for us and so rejuvenating, if I can put it that way. But one of the things that was really pressed upon my heart in this season that my wife and I were off was that you are loved perfectly by God. Church, you, there is no one and nothing else that will love you the way God loves you. You are perfectly loved by God. And through his great love, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And because of this, you and I are no longer citizens of this world or of the kingdoms of this world. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And our allegiance is to God who loves us and gave himself for us. And as such, we now live for the glory of God, not the glory of this world. And what that does, when we live for the glory of God, it opens us up to suffering because living for the glory of God puts us in opposition to the passions of the world. And this is why Peter writes this letter and addresses the sufferings the Christian of his day are experiencing. And he points them to Jesus as the ultimate example of how to endure suffering. And that is the series we're in right now. Endurance, how to endure. And because Peter wrote this letter, we benefit and we learn how to endure suffering so that we might remain faithful to God as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, in this passage today, Peter reveals four steps to faithful, God-honoring 
suffering. Let me say that again. Peter's going to give us four steps to faithful, God-honoring suffering. That's right. As Christians, we will suffer for the glory of God. And Peter gives us these four steps. First of all, when it comes to suffering for our faith in Jesus, we should expect it. We should rejoice in it. We should manage it. And we should entrust our suffering to God. Those are the four steps we're going to look at today. Let me hop into uh, step number one, which is that we should expect suffering as Christians. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. You should highlight that and underline it in your Bible. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. So let's just open this up a little bit. I love the fact that Peter again begins with the word beloved because he wants them to understand that in the midst of their suffering, God loves you. See, often what happens to us as people when we enter into some form of suffering, we begin to question whether or not God still loves us. And Peter begins with the most important point, which is this. You are loved. Beloved. That's what you are. God loves you perfectly. And so he wants them to remember that in the midst of their suffering, God loves you. Because you see, their suffering was because they're loved by God and because they love God. That was why they were suffering. And then Peter dives in and he gets into it. And he says, look, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, here in our Western society, in our Western culture, we think of suffering as a Christian as something strange. But it's not. And it shouldn't be. It never should be. Christians should not see suffering for Jesus as something strange. Why not? Well, we can begin by saying because the word of God tells us that the world loves darkness rather than light. They hate the light because their deeds are evil. Now, let me just, before we think higher of ourselves and lower of the world, remember that we were the world, but we've been saved out of it. And so this defines what we were like before he saved us. But the reality is that the remainder of the world who have not come to faith in Christ are like this. But when Christians that have now been saved by Christ live in the light, living to expose the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, we can expect opposition that will lead us into suffering. And that suffering can be intense. Notice how Peter defines the suffering that was a com coming upon them as a fiery trial. Now, we might think of it in two ways. We could think of this, that he's saying it's just going to be really intense suffering. Or it could allude to the fact of what was going on, that Christians were being persecuted and crucified and often even put in bags and leather bags and hung up and lit up as torches. So it could be either one or it could be both. 
Either way, it was intense suffering. But he says, don't be surprised. But there's something very interesting about the suffering that he's talking about. Peter says in this verse that it's to test you. Think on that. It's to test you. Well, why are we being tested? And if you've been here for the duration of the series of 1 Peter, you'll remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 7, where we read this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why. So let's just kind of walk down this lane for a moment. You see, how do you know that your faith is genuine? Unless it's tested. You can claim to have faith all you want. But there's no validity to your faith until it's tested. People claim to have faith in Jesus all the time. But it's not until suffering comes on us that the genuineness of our faith is revealed. And so we should expect it. Because through it, the genuineness of our faith is revealed. And you and I, as much as we claim to have faith, we actually don't know the genuineness of our faith until suffering comes on us and it's tested. And so therefore, God in his goodness allows and even, yes, even ordains suffering to come upon us so that the genuineness of our faith might be revealed. Hey, see, this means that we need to have a right understanding of suffering as Christians, right? This means that we need to expect it. We need to expect to have our faith tested. So instead of asking, Lord, why are you allowing me to suffer? We should expect it. Because we know what's going on. It's being tested. So how are you doing with that? When struggles come your way, when difficulties come upon you, when suffering comes your way, what does it reveal about your faith? What does it reveal about my faith? But Peter goes on. We're not only to expect it, but step number two is an even stranger step in that we are to rejoice in suffering. Look at verses 13 and 14. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <laughs> Rejoice in suffering. When was the last time that you were mistreated because you were a Christian and you came home and you said, man, I just had such a good day. 
right? Kids, if you've ever been in school and you've told them that you're a Christian and they started teasing you and making fun of you, did you come home and say, oh, I had an awesome day? Moms and dads in your workplace, in your place of school or your, 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 your social settings, wherever it may be, whatever it is, have you ever come home and said, I was really blessed today. I had the privilege of suffering for Jesus because I'm a Christian. When's the last time we've responded that way? Notice how Peter actually defines the suffering he's talking about. Rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Well, what does it mean to to partake or share in Christ's sufferings? Now, I'm not going to lay it all out. I don't have time for that this morning, but I'm going to give us a couple of things. You see, remember that Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered because he was the son of God. He suffered because he held up God's truth. He suffered because he was faithfully obedient to his father's will. There's just a, a, a very few statements here on why or how he suffered. So to share in Christ's suffering is to have suffering come upon us because we have faith in Jesus. It begins with that. It's to suffer because we uphold God's truth. We live according to God's word. It's to suffer because we're living in obedience to God's word. And the list can go on. So let's ask ourselves, when is the last time we actually partook or shared in Christ's sufferings? When is the last time you and I were mistreated because of our faith in Jesus? When's the last time we shared in Christ's suffering? Now, there's many reasons why we, most of us, or many of us, haven't. But we're going to look into that just a little bit. But when we suffer because of these things, then we're sharing in Christ's suffering. And when we do, we shouldn't hang our heads. We should rejoice. That word rejoice here means to feel exhilaration. (laughs) You're to feel exhilaration when you're being mistreated for your faith in Christ. You're to experience a sense of excitement and happiness, joy for being mistreated, for believing in him and living the way God has called us to live. Yeah, but we don't really. I mean, even myself, right? But this is, it's very literal. This isn't hypothetical. This is very literal. Remember in Acts chapter 5, after the apostles had been arrested, after they'd been beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus Christ in the temple area, and they were told to preach in his name no more, we read in Acts 5.41 that when they left the presence of the council, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. When was the last time 
we as a church came together and rejoiced because some of our members were mistreated and suffered for the name of Jesus. Let's be honest, we don't have that experience very much, not in our context, not in our setting, but my goodness, it looks like that may be not too far down the road, right? But this, what's uncommon for us is actually very common in so many other parts of the world. So then why is it that we're not suffering for Christ? And we can look at it from the political perspective that the, you know, our government has given us freedoms and so therefore we don't suffer. But let's back off from that for a moment. And I just want to kind of bring one other thing to mind here. Perhaps maybe we don't suffer for our faith in Christ is because people don't actually know we're Christians. And we're not focused on living a life of holiness and righteousness. We're so consumed with our comforts that we don't want to fracture that. You see, think on this for a moment. If people don't know we're Christians, if we never share the truth of humanity's sinful condition. And the answer to that sinful condition, which of course is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we don't share this, if we don't make it known, we may never share in the sufferings of Christ. But that then leads to some other things. If we never make Christ known, if people don't know that we're Christians, in our community, or in our social circles. And we don't share the plight of humanity and the solution, then the genuineness of our faith may never be revealed because we may never suffer for the sake of Christ. And if we never suffer for Christ, we actually may never know the privilege of what it is to share in his suffering and cause us to rejoice in suffering with him. But we might ask, well, why would we want to suffer? Because, see, it's so contrary to human nature, right? We don't want to suffer. In fact, I don't know if it's in the Canadian Charter of Rights or not, but we seem to know more about the U.S. than we do, do about ourselves here in Canada, right? And what, one of the elements in their, 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 their constitution is the freedom to pursue happiness. How does that fit in with this, right? Because remember, the world only thinks... On this level here, on an earthly level, I want happiness here and now, and I have the right to pursue that. Well, how does that fit in here when we're to rejoice in suffering? Because nobody wants to suffer. It's so contrary to our thinking. So why would we want to suffer with him? And I think the answer is very simple. Because he is so worthy our suffering. Jesus is worthy of our suffering. Man, he loved us to the degree that he came down out of heaven and he humbled himself and he became man and was rejected by his own people. He was beaten and mocked and 
and scourged and finally crucified. And he did it that he might save us so that he might bring glory to his father. He is worthy of our suffering. So why wouldn't we want to suffer for him who loved us and we now love him? Now, in this passage, Peter goes on and gives us several more reasons why we should rejoice when we share in Christ's suffering. He goes and he says this, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, there's a day coming when believers' suffering will come to an end. And that will happen when Jesus returns. And on the day that he comes back, all those who rejected him, follow me on this, who rejected him and who brought suffering upon those who trusted in Jesus, they'll be struck with the terrible horror and the realization that they were wrong. But the Christians who suffered in this lifetime, they'll rejoice. Because then with their own eyes, no longer by faith, but in reality, they'll see Jesus, we'll see Jesus in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his splendor, and in all his might. And the Christian will rejoice because they will finally see the object of their faith. And in that moment, it will be reaffirmed that all their suffering for Jesus was a thousand times worth it. Secondly, he says in verse 14, he gives another reason. He says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Well, wait, if I'm being mistreated and insulted because of my faith in Jesus Christ, how... How can that possibly mean I'm blessed? And he tells us, because that indicates that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, so often we wonder why God allows Christians to suffer. And in that, if we were to honest, be honest with ourselves, we would even proclaim or tell ourselves that we think that maybe God's abandoned us. But that's not the truth at all. The truth is when we suffer because of faith in Jesus, it's because the Spirit of God rests upon us. It's actually the evidence that the Spirit of God rests upon us which confirms our salvation and our union with Christ. What's more, it means that his Spirit is leading us. That's why we're suffering because he too is the spirit of righteousness and holiness. And he's leading us into these truths. And he's causing us to live this way, which is bringing suffering upon us. And so he's leading us and he's guiding us. And that means that he will also give to us what we need so that we can endure. So yes, we should expect to suffer. And we should learn to rejoice in suffering for him. But then he gives us a third step. We need to manage our suffering. Point number three, manage our suffering. Now that sounds strange, but look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief 
or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now that seems really strange to tell to a, say to a bunch of Christians, right? Because, well, we don't do these things, right? So why would Peter go on and say this? Well, there's several reasons, but I need to minimize it for the sake of time. But understand this. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you will understand that you still struggle with the flesh, right? Why is that? Because we still have sin in us. And sadly, oftentimes, believers can still act like unbelievers. We see it even in Scripture. But now let's look at another reason. When Christians are mistreated because of their faith in Jesus, the greater the suffering that comes upon us, it can drive us to the point to tempt us to respond in an ungodly manner. Now remember their context. It wasn't just that they were being made fun of, right? They were experiencing severe persecution. Nero had burnt down much of the city of Rome and was blaming the Christians for it. He has ordered Christians to be persecuted. Now, Christians were already despised for having rejected the pagan gods of Rome. They were suffering because they had rejected Nero as Lord, declaring that there is only one God and there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so Christians became the scourge of society. They were being lied about. Their reputations were being destroyed. Their lives were literally being decimated. They were having their homes torn down and burned. Their possessions taken away. They had, sorry, their, had their families split apart, often being imprisoned, often being crucified, sometimes put in big leather bags, hung up and lit on fire as torches. And the list just goes on and on and on. It truly was a fiery trial. And when Christians are put in a vice of suffering to such a degree, remember, we still have sin in us and we are weak. And we can, in those seasons, be tempted to justify ungodly conduct. So Peter commands them, don't let your suffering be because of ungodly conduct. Yeah, but you don't understand what he's doing to us. Yes, I do. Peter knows full well. I don't. Peter did, just to make that clear. So he says, don't suffer because of ungodly conduct. Don't respond in an ungodly fashion. Manage what you suffer for. In verse 16, he then he gives what we should suffer for. Then yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Basically what he's saying is if you're going to suffer, let it be because you're a Christian. 
And then he goes on and expands on that and says, in fact, don't be ashamed to be called a Christian. I'll be honest with you. I'll, I'll confess this morning that there have been times in my life where I had the opportunity to, be, to, to declare myself a Christian, but I was too cowardly to do so. That's, that's a weakness. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever done that? It's okay to be honest. Because we have a good God who is forgiving. Why does Paul, or sorry, Peter, tell them not to be ashamed suffering as a Christian? In fact, he defines it a little more. He says, but let him glorify God in that name. The name of what? The name of Christ being labeled as a Christian a Christian. Now, here's the thing. You see, um, the name Christian or the label Christian was not something that Christians developed. It was a derogatory term developed by pagans slapped on believers of Jesus Christ. That's what it was. And he says, he tells them, don't be ashamed of being called a Christian. It was, it was such a derogatory term in those days to be called a Christian that in our day, in our setting, it would be equal to some of the words that we can't use today because they're considered so racist and so derogatory. That's what that word Christian meant. That's how derogatory it was. It was meant to insult you, to shame you. It was meant to actually incite hatred and persecution towards you so it was oh you're a christian hey that's great ah whatever no it's like you're one of them get away from me you're the scum of the earth you're the scourge of society and i want nothing to do with you that is what it meant to bear the name of christ and he says don't be ashamed of being labeled a christian don't be ashamed but then he goes on and he says, in fact, glorify God in that. Use it to glorify God. If you're known as a Christian, use it to demonstrate, to reveal what God is like. So how do you do that? You live according to biblical truth. You live a life of godliness. Righteousness. You live a life of holiness because you are a holy people. You love your neighbor as yourself. You love your enemies. And you do good and bless those who persecute you. And as Peter has already stated in this letter... It also means that you submit to every human institution for the Lord's sake. That's how you glorify God in the name of Christ. And there's more that we can add to that out of the scripture. But trying to stay within the book of 1 Peter, here's what we've put together. So let's think of this for a moment. How's that going for us in this season right now? How's that going for you? 
What's your conduct like in this season right now? What are you known for right now? What do people know about you in this season? What is it that's emanating from us as a church and as a people of God? Let's think that through personally and deeply. You see, God has given us a platform in this season to glorify him. How are we doing with that? What's the testimony arising from each of us? Now listen carefully. If it's anything other than what Jesus modeled for us when he walked on the earth. Let me repeat that. If it's anything other than what Jesus modeled for us when he walked on the earth, then we need to repent of it. Because that's not what we're called to. We are called to glorify God in this season. Peter gives another reason why we may suffer. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to unpack this. I'm going to try to summarize this. And that is that God may actually be disciplining us. Look at verse 17 and 18. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, this is so packed and so full. And I do not, you cannot possibly unpack everything out of these two verses this morning. So I'm going to summarize it and just bring it to the point. And here's what I want to say as we think we hear this. We're like, it really begins to cause our minds to start spinning and going, wait a minute. Judgment? Christians? Judgment? What? 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 If he starts judging the house of God, what's he saying? Are we going to be judged? Are we going to be cast into hell? So let me put some context around this. This is why it's important for us to know what the word of God teaches. And so let me, let me begin by saying it this way. Here's what we know. For the Christian, there is no eternal judgment and condemnation. Because Christ has already dealt with that judgment on the cross. He absorbed it on our behalf. But not so for the unbeliever. For all those who reject Christ... The judgment of God awaits in its full fury. But here's the thing. The judgment here levied against the house of God, or if you want to, against the individual believer, is not judicial judgment, but discipline. You see, even though Jesus has already dealt with the believer's sin and absorbed God's judgment on our behalf, listen, God is not okay with his children acting in an ungodly manner. But his judgment towards his children is not one of condemnation, but a judgment of intense discipline 
Yes, intense discipline that will break us from our ungodliness, resulting in the fruit of righteousness. You mean everything we read in Scripture and history about how Christians have suffered? That God uses that as discipline? How could our sin really be that bad? And see, that's precisely the problem. We think that discipline, that we see the Christian suffering in this letter, that it's unjust. The problem is you and I have such a low view of sin. That's the problem. And God will do whatever it takes to break you and me from that ungodliness so that it might produce righteousness within us. So Peter says, yes, it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if his discipline towards believers is this intense, then think about what the outcome will be for those who don't obey the gospel. And that's not discipline. That will be judgment and wrath. So what Peter's saying is this. Listen, don't suffer for ungodly conduct. He's backing Backing it up to his point here again. Don't suffer, manage your suffering. Don't suffer for ungodly conduct. If you're going to suffer, listen, better to suffer at the hands of men for the name of Christ than to suffer under the judgment of God for rebellion against him. So what we've seen so far is that we've been that if we're going to endure, sorry, if we're going to endure suffering, we need to expect it, we need to rejoice in it, we need to manage it, and then the fourth step is we need to entrust our souls to God in suffering. And that even means entrusting our suffering to God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. See, on one hand, yes, it's true, we may suffer because God may be disciplining us for conduct that is unbecoming of a Christian. But when we suffer because of our faithful obedience to God and his will, living as he's called us to, we shouldn't question if it's because God has forsaken us. In fact, in that season, what we're to do is to entrust our souls to God. Yes, I am suffering. Yes, I am suffering because I am being faithful unto God. Right? And if that brings suffering unto me, I'm leaving my soul into God's hands. I'm trusting him with all that I'm going through. Trust him and trust yourself to God in that season. You see, I believe this is precisely one of the whole points, if not the whole point, of the book of 1 Peter, is how to endure suffering, and he gives us the ultimate example, which is found in 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22. Writing about suffering, Peter says, for to this you have been called. My goodness, right? Right? We have been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, right? An example is something that's intended for us to 
model after, right? To follow after, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But listen, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think of all that Christ endured. Think of all the suffering that he experienced. In all of that, he did not rebel. He didn't take a stand and say, these are my rights and these are my freedoms. He gave himself. He humbled himself before God and entrusted himself to God. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do right there. Entrust our souls to God when suffering comes upon us. So, when God allows suffering to come upon us, because we bear the name of Christ, we entrust him with ourselves. See, don't look at suffering as God being against you. Why, God? Why are you doing this to me? What am I doing wrong? Why have you left me? Why have you abandoned me, God? See, that's not what we're called to do. Here's what we're called to do. You see, when he ordains his children to share in the sufferings of his son, it's for our good and his glory. And it's momentary suffering. It's but a vapor and then it's gone, even though it may be intense. I don't want to minimize that point. But it's in that time, brothers and sisters, in that time, when we suffer to that degree, we need to remember the ultimate example of Jesus who was rejected by his own people because of his obedience to his Father for standing for truth and righteousness and holiness. Remember that in his suffering, he was beaten, he was mocked, and he was scorned. But in all of this, he entrusted himself to God, his Father, who judges rightly, who judges justly. And that's what we need to do. And in his suffering, Christ absorbed the wrath That wasn't his, but was mine and yours. Because of his obedience in his suffering, death and sin no longer have a hold on me. Because of his suffering, we are free. We're free. And when we share in Christ's suffering, it's because he has set us free. And we now live for his glory. So it is a high privilege to share in the sufferings of Christ. To suffer because we we bear the name of Christ. So let's remember. Let's remember the four steps that we've seen today. Expect it. And when it comes... Rejoice in it. Let's manage what we're suffering for and then entrust ourselves to God. That is a life worth living right there.
Let's pray. Oh, our God and Father in heaven, your word is sufficient for life and godliness, not just in times of abundance of peace, but in seasons of turmoil, tribulation, and suffering. And Lord, you have spoken to me through your word all week long and revealed my shortcomings and my weaknesses. But Lord, I pray this morning that your people would walk from here this morning, Lord, either being edified in the faith or convicted and where they need to be convicted, Lord. But in all things, I pray that your people would not remain under guilt, but that we would remember the goodness of God that you've demonstrated through us through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins so that we don't need to continue to live in guilt. So I pray, Lord, that we, when we walk from here today, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up and we would say, yes, we want to rejoice when suffering comes upon us. I pray we would be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for our faithfulness unto you. Lord, you have made us to be citizens of your kingdom. I pray that would be evident in our lives. Cause us to live not for the kingdoms of this world, but for your kingdom. Give us right understanding of what it is to share in the sufferings of Christ and cause us to live lives that are sold out for you. Prepare our minds to embrace God-honoring, Christ-exalting suffering. Bring us to the place where we see Christ as so overwhelmingly worthy and precious that we can't help but speak of him and live for him. Keep us, Lord, from being swept away by all the other things that fight for our mind space. And if we should be called to suffer for you, Lord, raise us up so that we would rejoice in it. Break us from the comforts of the life that we know here in the West. Implant in our minds that you alone are our true comfort. Cause us to be wise so that we wouldn't suffer because of ungodly conduct, but because of our happy obedience to you and because of our joyful proclamation of Jesus Christ. If any of you would like prayer after the service, you can come up front. I'll be up here. One of our elders will be around. But brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We have a great high calling to exalt Jesus Christ in this season. Let us remember the testimony that we have of presenting in this season. If anyone here today has never come to faith in Christ, we would invite you, and Christ invites you to come to him so that you might be saved, that your sins would be forgiven, that you would become a citizen of the kingdom of God and a child of God. If you come to him, he will by no means cast you out. And so, Father, this is your church. These are your people. Strengthen us, edify us, and may you be exalted through us in Jesus' name. Amen.